This is a talk about uh, creation. It's uh, primarily for Christadelphians, so it does assume a knowledge of their beliefs and engages with some of their material. But if you're not a Christadelphian, welcome along, and I hope you find this talk useful. This is the second talk under the general heading Creation for Christadelphians. In the first talk, we showed first that the beginning in Genesis 1 refers to the six days of creation. And secondly, that only we saw that only God can create. This talk is in uh, subtitled Giving Life and Making Fruit. So in this talk, first, we will be establishing that for there to be life, uh, God has to give it. Secondly, we will consider some scriptural verses which concern living things making fruit after their kind. So firstly, then, let's consider giving life. And let's turn to First Timothy and chapter 6 and verse 16, first of all, where Paul says uh, concerning God, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. So in this verse, we see that God only hath immortality. Now, of course, the angels and the Lord Jesus Christ are immortal, but they are only immortal because God has originally given um, them immortality in, in the first place. But in terms of um, God being everlasting to everlasting, he has uh, always been um, immortal. And in that sense, he only hath immortality. Now let's consider a, a verse from the book of Job and chapter 33. And these are the words of Elihu. And in Job 33 and verse 4, Elihu says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. So in this verse, Elihu states that the life that he had had originally been given to him by God. Now, a similar point is made by the Apostle Paul when he was talking to the uh, philosophers in Athens um, on Mars Hill. So let's uh, turn to um, Acts chapter 17 and verse 25, where Paul says of God, that God is neither neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So Paul makes the same point as Elihu, that uh, the life which a person has, has originally been given to him by God. Now let's consider the words of the Lord Jesus Christ um, himself. Let's go to the Gospel of John. And chapter 5 and verse 26, where the Lord Jesus says, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. So God only has um, immortality. He only has life in that sense. And so the life that the Lord Jesus had, the mortal life which he had at the time he was speaking, of course, the immortal life he now has, he only has that life because it has been given to him by God. And let's stay in John now and turn to um, John chapter 6 
And in verse 63, we read, the Lord Jesus says, um, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So the Lord Jesus in the latter part of this verse is speaking about the words which he spoke. But we see the point at the beginning, um, which we can apply to uh, to natural life. Uh, the um, It's the spirit that quickeneth or maketh alive. So uh, that verse helps us to uh, see that um, life could only come about in the first place um, by God and by God using uh, his power. Um, his spirit, the spirit of God. Now, bearing that in mind, let's turn now to the book of Genesis and uh, chapter 7. Now, here's a, some verses which are speaking um, about what happened at the flood. Um, Genesis uh, chapter 7. And in uh, um, verse 21... We read these words, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. Now, the reason why we've quoted to these verses is that um, actually in the Hebrew, the original text, um, this verse also speaks not just about breath the oxygen which a person breathes but it also speaks about the spirit of god um, as well it's not apparent in the the ab translation there but if you follow um, um a marginal rendering of the uh text we see that actually the, the words the hebrew translated breath of life more is more accurately translated the breath of the spirit of life so this verse is showing us um, something which we've already uh, seen, uh, and that is that um, critical to life, the origin of life particularly, um, is the spirit of God. Now let's turn back to the words of some words of Elihu back in uh, Job, this time Job and chapter 34. And in Job chapter 34, and verse 14, Elihu says of God, if he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together and man shall turn again unto dust. So these verses show that um, life depends not just on the air we breathe, but upon the spirit of God. Now let's turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 11. Now, of course, this is um, speaking um, in, in, in symbolic language. It speaks of dead bodies and they're not literal uh, dead bodies um, in this case. The same principles uh, can, be, uh, can be brought out. So Revelation chapter 11 and verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them now this uh, as we say is symbolic it's it's uh, talking about political and religious witnesses coming to life following the french revolution but the point which we wish to make is that um, in order 
for these um, bodies to come to life, the spirit of life from God had to enter into them. Now let's uh, look at um, a quotation from an article written by uh, Brother Stephen Palmer uh, many years ago in a testimony magazine speaking about this topic. And he says, there must be a life force in addition to the breath of life. For one may artificially ventilate a cadaver forever without bringing it to life. We may not be able to define the life force. It's intangible, but it is nonetheless real. It belongs to God. And when it is withdrawn, a man dies. So um, these words are, are basically um, reflecting what we've seen in the verses that we've just quoted. And that is that for there to be a, a, a non-living thing to be living, uh, that life originally has to be given by uh, God through his power. And to, in some way, that power... Um, is, uh, sustains that person until they die. It's a, a life force um, which um, is required, not just um, oxygen being ventilated uh, ventilated into um, a person or uh, animal. So we will now uh, consider a couple of proposed environments in which it has been suggested uh, by scientists that life has, or at least could have, naturally originated. Um, we will then contrast these with the biblical record of the origin of man. So this is a quotation from a letter written by Charles Darwin to Sir Joseph Dalton Hook, a botanist and Darwin's closest friend. So let's read what he said. It is often said that all the conditions for the first production of a living organism are now present, which could ever have been present. But if, and oh, what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc., present, that a protein compound was chemically formed and ready to undergo still more complex changes, at the present day such matter would be instantly devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before living creatures were formed. So there are two key things we'd like to note from this quotation. First, Darwin sees the origin of life as requiring an exotic environment, including such things as ammonia, phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, and so forth. Secondly, the reason why life is deemed as unlikely to emerge today is because if, for example, a protein formed, it would be destroyed by existing living creatures before um, it could evolve. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that it should be possible, if Darwin is right, to provide a controlled environment in a laboratory matching the supposed ingredients and the factors that led, supposedly, to the origin of life, whether it be those envisaged by Darwin or some other combination. In such an environment, the independent variables which will mitigate against living things coming into existence could be removed. But, of course, no one has created life uh, even in the controlled environment of a laboratory. Now, here's another exotic environment that's been put forward. Um, this has been suggest, uh, uh, suggested by um, Gunter Rochschauser, who in the late 1980s formulated the so-called iron sulfur world theory, a theory that early life may have formed on the surface of iron sulfide minerals 
a process that may have had volcanic hydrothermal origins. So we've had Darwin's exotic pond. Now we've got another exotic environment being put forward as a, a possible location for the origin of life, namely these uh, volcanic hydrothermal um, vents. But now let's compare those two proposed environments with what um, the, the origin of life as spoken of in the Bible. And the origin or the location of the origin of life as spoken of in the Bible um, contrasts markedly with these environments because it's not exotic at all. So let's have a look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. So in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we read, And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So the environment here is not an exotic pond or a hydrothermal vent. It is just the dust of the ground. Now let's consider some verses from Isaiah and chapter 51. Now this passage is speaking about Abraham and Sarah. And of course they had a uh, child, a son, um, Isaac, um, even though um, uh, Abraham and Sarah were both very old at the time, and even though Sarah uh, had up until that time been um, barren. So, but as we see, we can also apply these verses to uh, the original origin of man. So in Isaiah 51, verse 1, we, we read, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you, for I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion, he will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving, and the voice of uh, melody so as we said this this passage is speaking about abraham and sarah and so when we read of the hole of the pit there that is a way of speaking about um, the barrenness of uh, of sarah and and the fact that also both abraham and sarah were very old so it was uh, impossible that um they could uh, naturally um give birth unless they were miraculously strengthened uh, by God, which of course um, is what happened. But we can also apply these verses to the, uh, the original uh, creation of Adam, um, not least because we find allusion uh, or mention there of Eden in verse 3. And so Adam actually was um, created out of the hole of a pit, not an exotic pond, um, but just a dry pit, and he was formed from the dust of the ground. So we can see the contrast then between um, the origin of um, life as spoken of in the scriptures 
compared with what we read uh, with these suggestions being put forth uh, by which have been put forth by scientists and of course uh, the point is that for life to come about um, even the scientists uh, recognize that something extraordinary had to happen and what they have done at least in the case of Darwin um, and the other suggestions to the hydrothermal events, they've gone for the exotic uh, within the natural world. But what the Bible shows is actually life can only come from God himself. And what we'd like to do now is introduce a model, a very simple model of the heavens and the earth, um, which uh, we'll assume we can call the uh, universe, um, a simple model of the universe in relation to God's uh, dwelling place, um, the eternity which God um, inhabits. So what we like to do now is focus in on the boundary between these two. Now, as we say, this is just a model, but what we're going to say is based on scripture. So let's focus in on this boundary. And what we'd like to do is uh, turn to the some verses spoken of by the Lord Jesus in the book of Matthew. So let's turn to Gospel of Matthew and chapter six. And we'll just read a couple of verses there uh, from uh, uh, that chapter. Verse 19, lay, up, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So what we see then in this model is that in God's dwelling place, neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. But uh, on the earth, moth and rust doth corrupt. And of course, throughout the universe, generally, um, things corrupt and things do uh, rust where the right conditions are to be found for that process to occur. We also see that uh, thieves do not break through nor steal in God's, into God's dwelling place, but thieves do break through and steal um, in, uh, uh, on earth. And we can uh, sort of generalize the, the principle there and generalize it to say that it's not possible for man to get out of the universe and into God's dwelling place. It's not possible for him to uh, cross that boundary. Now, and there are many other verses which we could help to illustrate this boundary. For example, Paul's statement that we, we've already looked at, that God dwells in the light which no man can approach unto, as opposed to the light with its finite speed found in the universe. But the point that we're making here is simply that the universe as a whole in relation to uh, God's dwelling place is a closed system. Right, we're making use of that. We make use of that model now uh, to make some uh, further points. So here's our model, the, heaven, the universe. And let's consider these words back in Genesis chapter one. Now, in Genesis chapter one, verse 10, um, it's speaking of some of the things that happened on the third day. And it says uh, in verse 10 and chapter one, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called his seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, if what would have happened um, if at that point um, God's creative work um, had stopped, what would have happened? And 
Basically, if creation stopped at that point with no further miraculous intervention, then living things would not have emerged on the earth. Now, of course, they did emerge on the earth because that same day, in the following verse we read, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the earth yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind and so on. So like God did create living things and, and did bring life into uh, the earth. But if, the, if um, after verse 10, God had uh, stopped intervening, then no life would have naturally um, emerged, however long uh, the earth had, would, have was left, would have been left in that state. So we see this principle that for life to um, emerge on earth, life had to be given by God. And, and the origin of that life lies outside, in terms of naturally speaking, um, the universe. It had to be given by God, uh, who only has um, immortality, who only truly um, has life. Now, it's worth just noting that even those who... Um, uh, believe in creation and argue for the divine origin of life, often um, their arguments get sidetracked, uh, speaking about um, the structures that, uh, that sustain uh, life and, and that are, are alive. And arguments are made about the complexity of those structures. And, and very quickly, the discussion of the origin of life becomes discussion about um, how structures which sustain life could not have come about naturally or in, or if they could the probability of that happening would be uh, very uh, very low but when we talk about the origin of life we have to uh, we can be much more fundamental and um, talk about not the structures which sustain life but the origin of life itself we need to make clear fundamentally that even if you've got the structure present with all the relevant chemicals Unless God gives life, then life will not originate at all. And it's not a matter of probability. It's not just that it's it's a low probability. It's impossible. It's not. It's just not going to happen naturally. Life will only come about if uh, God gives it. So let's take a verse from Genesis two, verse seven, and there we read, and Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now look, think of that in terms of two things first of all the structure the structure is there god formed man of the dust of the ground now if that structure had just been left there as it was with all its necessary complexity unless god then gave that structure life then it wouldn't it wouldn't come to life um naturally speaking so um, even if you've got the structure the, the life uh, has to be given um, by God himself. Let's look at another example now from Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, again, this is uh, symbolic. This is a vision, but the same principle uh, can uh, be brought out. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 8. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. So you've got the structure. The biological structure is all there. But unless God gives life to the structure, then it will not come alive. So when we're thinking about um, the origin of life, let's we need to focus, and at least initially, fundamentally, on the fact that even if you've got the structure, you're not going to get life unless God 
um, gives it. Now let's consider a passage in Acts chapter 2. Now this is uh, Peter quoting from uh, Psalm 16. It's a psalm written by David, but as becomes apparent in the interpretation which Peter gives, is actually speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 26 we read, Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because that will not leave my soul in hell, neither will that suffer thy holy one to see corruption. So the word hell here, of course, it's referring to the grave. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus and speaking about how he was placed in the tomb. But when he was in the tomb, um, he, his body was not allowed by God to corrupt at all. So... We've got a, a reason for quoting these verses is because we've got the a perfect structure here, so a structure that's not or the structure is not corrupted at all. Because of course we know for fact that when you have a dead body, um, that dead body cannot be brought back to life. Now, it could be argued, but the reason for that is because it, uh, as soon as the person has died, um, then um, are not are not. And truly died, not just had a cardiac arrest, but actually then died beyond the point where they could be resuscitated. Then that the the death actually immediately brings in damage to the uh, the structure, and so therefore that's why you can't bring it back to life. But of course, even if the point of this is that quoting one reason for quoting these verses is you've got the structure here. There's no damage. There's no there's no corruption to the tissues at all. As a consequence of death, because God is miraculously preventing that. But nevertheless, the body is dead, and unless God um, uh, brought that body back to life, then it would have remained um, dead. So um, we use this verse to, again, make this point that the origin of life, it's a fundamental argument about how God has to give life. It's not just to do with structure, though, of course, arguments about the complexity of structure are very important. Uh, those the, the the complexity of structure is an evidence, of course, of the uh, creative power of God. But what we're looking at is the um, the comp uh, the fact that life has to be given by God. So, even if given a non-living structure, even if a non-living structure has the necessary form to support life, it's impossible that it will live unless God gives it life and there's no basis for ascribing a probability to this however low to life emerging naturally from non-living material so as soon as we use the term probability we're kind of almost acknowledging that somehow there's, there's a vague possibility that um, something could occur and then because we're, we're trying to argue that it's not going to occur we then have to resort to arguments which um, are not as strong as they could be um, but the fact is it is impossible for um, a non-living thing to uh, come to life unless God gives uh, uh, that thing life through his power. And so we need to, um, when we're arguing about the origin of life and advocating that um, it couldn't have come about, um, naturally speaking, uh, in, in this kind of uh, context, we, we don't want, we don't need to, and it's actually wrong to start talking about probability because it's just not a matter of probability. It's not that probability is so low, we may just as well say it's impossible. It, it, it is impossible 
um, and the it's it's in, uh, that something will come to life unless God gives life um, to that non-living thing, whatever it might be. Well, now let's uh, move on and think about um, the natural world in which we live. And one of the things that we like to think about is the fact that we live in a world where there is a tendency for things to become more disordered. Now, all the time in these talks, what we're trying to do is show just how scripture uh, can be brought to bear upon arguments which relate to uh, creation and the origin of life. And that these uh, scriptures are not just those found in Genesis and those which explicitly talk about creation, but other verses too can be brought to bear to bring principles relevant to discussions about life and the origin of life. Now, this is one such passage, and it's in 2nd of Samuel and chapter 14. And here we have a wise, the wise woman of Tekoa speaking to David. And we go right into the middle of the context here, just to bring out this particular point. We just read verse 14 of 2nd Samuel chapter 14. For we must needs die our and ours water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Now the point which we're looking at here is this simple point um, that when water is spilt on the ground, you can't just gather it up again. Now, of course, it, it, theoretically, it would be possible to do that if you um, um, took time and had the relevant machinery and, and so on and so forth. But um, the, the point is that when water is spilt on the ground, it can't just be, um, you can't just sort of reverse the film and just gather that water up so it was exactly like before. The fact is, when you spill a drink, that's it. You can't gather it up again into your cup or your uh, your mug. Things become more disordered. And if you, as we say, if you played um, a film backwards of somebody spilling water from um, a cup or a mug, it would look very unusual. Now, this is... Um, uh, demonstrates a straightforward principle that we know from just our experience in life, and that is that things tend to become more disordered over time. Let's have a look at another example. Um, this is James uh, chapter 3. And in James chapter 3 and verse 11, we read, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Well, think of a fountain which had two under, um, water, uh, underground sources, one which was sweet water and one which is bitter. And so they come together in the actual fountain. Now, what would happen? Um, would the sweet water remain separate and the bitter water remain separate? Well, we know, again, from just from experience, that they're going to get all mi mixed up. They're going to become more disordered. And so it's impossible then for a fountain at the same place to bring forth both uh, sweet water and bitter. Now, what we like, the point that we like to uh, note now is that disorder is related to a property uh, known as entropy. 
Now, this is seen in this quote by Stephen Hawking. He said, entropy can be regarded as a measure of the disorder of a system, or equivalently as a lack of knowledge of its precise state. So what we're interested in is, is the first part of the statement, entropy can be regarded as a measure of the disorder of a system. So from a scientific perspective, disorder can be measured by this property, entropy. Now we'd like to uh, consider um, a quotation from Ezekiel chapter 15. To bring it, we've looked at term increase in disorder. Now we'd like to bring in another principle, um, and that is found in Ezekiel chapter 15. So Ezekiel chapter 15, and first of all, verse um, 2. Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work, or will men take a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devoureth both the ends of it, and the midst of it is, is burned. Is it meat for any work? Behold, when it was whole, it was meat for no work. How much less shall it be meat yet for any work, when the fire hath devoured it, and it is burned? Now, the point that we'd like to bring out here is that once it's been burnt, it's even less meat uh, for doing any more work. And this illustrates another principle which we'd uh, like to talk about here, um, uh, combined with the point we just made about disorder. And that is that um, there is a tendency in the world, in the earth, in the universe, for um, there to be for energy to become less available for work so if you want to boil a kettle you just flick the switch uh, the electricity um, uh, heats the kettle and the water boils and then of course the energy is conserved the energy is um, um, converted into the heat in the water and uh, in and and mostly and maybe a light on the switch and so on and so forth and that energy is still around but it's much less um, available for useful work you can't get, just access that energy by flicking another switch so energy um, overall becomes less available uh, for uh, a useful work now as the following quotation shows the this, uh, the available of the availability of energy for work also relates to entropy so this is just a quote from a standard site on physics the more disorder the system and higher the entropy the less of a system's energy is available to do work. So the decrease in the available availability of energy for work is a feature of higher entropy. We will now note an important link between entropy and the fundamental law of physics, the uh, well-known second law of thermodynamics. And again, the standard physics website says the second law of thermodynamics states that the total entropy of a system either increases or remains constant in any spontaneous process. It never decreases. So what's the significance of all this for our, our topic? Well, overall then we've seen um, that a closed system, in a closed system entropy will never decrease. So in the universe as a whole, treating the universe as a closed system, it will never decrease. Without intervention from outside, the system will never become more ordered. In reality, of course, things do tend to become more disordered over time. 
So when water is spilt, sweet and bitter water are mixed, or a vine is burnt, there will be an increase in entropy as prescribed by the second law of thermodynamics. Now let's relate this to um, discussions about the origin of life, because this presents a problem for those who maintain that life has naturally, naturally emerged upon earth without a God, without divine intervention. Here's a quotation from um, Andy Pross. He's a professor of uh, chemistry. And he says this in a book about um, what is life, how chemistry becomes biology. How is the organized complexity of the cell maintained? And how did it come into being? Organized complexity and one of the most fundamental laws of the universe, the second law of thermodynamics, are inherently adversarial. Now, we have seen that the second law of uh, thermodynamics states that the total entropy of system either increases or remains constant. And when it increases, there is an in increase in disorder. This tendency, Prost says, works against the ordered complexity of living things. He goes on to say, or it says earlier on in his book, certain basic laws of physics preach the same sermon. Systems tend towards chaos and disorder, not toward order and function. Biology and physics seem contradictory, quite incompatible. No wonder the proponents of intelligent design managed to peddle their wares with such success. So, but the reason why there is no uh, wonder, quote unquote, is that given the adversarial relationship between the second law of thermodynamics and the complexity of life, it makes sense that the origin of life lies outside of this system created by a divine designer. But what is a source of, what is a source of wonder is that many, like Cross, still continue to believe that life emerged nat naturally despite this law. So we've identified um, that the world tends to become more disordered, um, and this is a fundamental law of physics, um, but this, is actually, this works against life naturally emerging, as, as these uh, quotations show. And it's worth also making another a, a, a general point about this, in relation to creation and miracles and that is that when a creation occurred and when a miracle is performed like for example when the lord jesus performed a miracle that actually leads to a decrease in entropy although or at least it would do if it wasn't for the all the other factors um, at work in the universe which um overall are uh, leading to an increase in entropy at least the rate of entropy at that point would decrease um, as a miracle um, is performed because it's um, for the miraculous uh, power of God originated from outside of the uh, universe. So then, in summary then, what we can say, is, what we've seen so far is that for there to be life, God has to give it. Only God can give life. Life cannot arise naturally, solely from 
non-living material. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that this uh, assertion is easily testable and falsifiable. If you want to, for example, um, use the likes of Karl Popper's arguments for what is a strong theory, it's very easy to test this. So all you've got to do is go out, get some non-living material, um, make it into a, a relevant structure and then give it life. And you can just prove that this statement is not true because no one's ever been able to do that. And they won't be able to do it because for something to be given life, um, God has to give it. And we've also seen that this is not a, a, something that, which is just highly improbable. It's actually um, impossible. So then let's now turn, <clears throat> turn to the second topic in this talk, and that is the topic of making fruit. So let's turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, and that verse 11. Genesis 1, verse 11. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. So here we read of the fruit tree yielding fruit. Now the word um, for uh, yielding there is the Hebrew word asa, which is a very common word. It's the, uh, the word which um, typically is translated make or do. So for example, the same verb occurs in verse 7, and God made the firmament. So what we're reading of here in Genesis 1 verse 11 um, is of a tree making fruit. There's an important principle here, and that is that trees can make, but they cannot create. Of course, this relates to what we were talking about in our first talk. So trees make fruit, but they cannot uh, create. So going back to Genesis 1 verse 11, um, let's just think about this phrase, after his kind. Now, there are, um, we might at this point uh, say, right, well, the word kind here is re relates to um, the same as the word species. Um, but there's a, a lot of, um, there's disagreement, uh, even amongst biologists, about how they uh, define uh, the, the term species. Um, for example, first, there's, there's the, their appro one approach is to look at inter interbreeding, which emphasizes interbreeding within a group, producing fertile offspring in productive isolation from other groups. Secondly, there's an ecological kind of definition of a species, which focuses on the environment, where a given species occupies a particular adaptive zone, which serves to maintain its uniqueness as a species. And the, uh, the third approach is phylogenetic, where a common ancestor is a primary criterion and that's just a sort of very simple overview um, of uh, some of the issues to do with defining what a species is. From our perspective we're simply going to um, accept a, a straightforward definition of this word kind as evidenced by for example Leviticus 11. We've got different kinds listed there of animals like vultures, kites, ravens, owls, weasels, mice, tortoise. That, that's the kind of um, kind that is being spoken of here. Um, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11. But now let's think of a particular kind in relation to the tree, and that is, let's just think of the apple. Now, the principle that comes out from Genesis 1 verse 11, applying it to the apple, is this. 
that the apple identity is maintained all the way through. So you've got an apple tree, it then has a fruit, um, and that, uh, that fruit is the apple. Um, you then get seed in that fruit, and that seed is the apple seed. So you've got the identity of the apple being maintained all the way uh, through. Now, at this point, we can consider some words of the Lord Jesus Christ to be found in Luke chapter 6. This is a really helpful verse uh, for um, considering um, theories through the evolution, for example. Luke chapter 6 and verse 44, the Lord Jesus says, For every tree is known by his own fruit, for of thorns men do not gather figs, um, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. So here's a real um, key principle when speaking um, arguing against evolution. Every tree is known by his own fruit. So we've got a tree, an apple tree, and it's known by its fruit. It's called an apple tree. Um, the apple gives it its um, identity. Gives it its identity. Um, and then, uh, uh, thinking about those um, further words of the Lord Jesus, he says, "For thorns, men do not gather figs." So a thorn tree cannot evolve into a fig tree. It's no good going to a thorn tree in the hope that it's um, a thorn in the hope that it's evolved and that actually you will find figs growing on that thorn. It's just not going to um, happen. Now, it's true um, that different fruits can be gathered on, uh, grafted onto a tree, but this is contrary to nature. Of course, does not contradict the principle that every tree is known by his own fruit. Let's turn now to a verse um, in um, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. And there we read, the things that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. So we can apply that principle to the tree, for example, the apple tree. It's not going to bring forth a new kind of fruit. It's going to bring forth the fruit that's been programmed into it, in the case of an apple tree, uh, the apple. So a tree can make uh, apple, a tree can make fruit after its, its kind, but it can create a new thing. It, it's impossible for it to do that. It can only make fruit after its kind. So that scriptural principle there, there is no th new thing under the sun actually works against uh, evolution and the emergence of new species. Um, you're not going to get um, new species evolving um, naturally. You're not going to get any such new thing. Now let's turn to back to the book of James and uh, James chapter 3. Uh, another helpful verse here, which we can bring to bear upon creation and versus evolution. James chapter 3 and verse 12. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? either a vine figs, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. So it's, um, first part of that verse we're particularly uh, interested in here. Um, a fig tree cannot evolve into an olive tree and a vine cannot evolve into a fig tree. So this is uh, really bringing out the point that we see back there in Genesis 
that uh, a tree or a living thing brings forth fruit after its kind. And there's so the verses such as that we're finding, looking at here in James chapter three, and other verses that we've looked at, uh, can be brought to bear um, in arguing against evolution. Script, the scripture principles here um, are clearly showing that um, uh, evolution uh, cannot take place. Now let's turn to the book of uh, Hebrews. Let's go back uh, to Hebrews and chapter 7. And again, going right in the middle of the context here, where it's speaking, uh, the writer's speaking about uh, the meeting of Abraham with Melchizedek. Um, and but in verse 9, we read, um, And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So um, in this verse, um, we see that when Abraham met uh, Melchizedek, in a sense, uh, and, and paid, and when Abraham paid Melchizedek tithes, in a sense, the Levites uh, were doing that because uh, they were descendants of Aaron. So an ancestor has within it, as it were, all its future descendants comprising of um, genetic uh, material found within the seed. So, for example, Christ was Abraham's seed, Galatians 3, verse 16, and was made of the seed of uh, David, as, uh, uh, as Romans chapter 4 says in Romans chapter 1. So the seed is of the same kind as its ancestor. Seed after his as seed after his kind, as we read um, in Genesis one verse twelve. Now, so there's an important point here, and that is that when you look at the uh, the ancestor um, of uh, somebody, there is something in the ancestor which can be said in, in the relevant way of speaking, as as the writer is in Hebrews seven. Uh, there's something in the ancestor, so that it can be said that that uh, person or creature is in the loins of that um, ancestor. Now, if you think, for example, of the hypothetical microbe, Luca, the last universal cellular ancestor, there's no way in which it could be said of that hypothetical uh, microbe um, that all future uh, descendants, supposed descendants, um, could be found in that microbe in the sense in which um, the writer is speaking of the Levites in the loins of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 7. So there's a very important principle here which is brought out in these verses um, in Hebrews chapter 7. Um, and incidentally, these, this principle can also be brought to bear upon um, the word. Words in scripture is often said um, by Christophans. The first occurrence of a word in scripture is very important, but um, that point is often not elucidated or explained why it's significant. But if you think of the first occurrence of the word having all the future occurrences of its, of its uh, uh, it, within its loins, as it were, then you can begin to understand the significance of the first word occurrence of a word in Scripture. So, for example, we have in beginning in Genesis 1 verse 1, later on that word is used to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a sense, that usage is there in Genesis 1 verse 1. So 
when we look at Genesis 1 verse 1, um, that can tell us something about the, the new creation uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that does not mean that the Lord Jesus was there in Genesis 1 verse 1 anymore, that it means that the Levites were actually there with Abraham meeting uh, Melchizedek, as recorded in Genesis uh, 14. Well, now let's turn to First uh, Corinthians and chapter 15, chapter which, of course, is all, all about the resurrection, well, or perhaps more accurately, more about people being raised up um, and to glory in the kingdom, ultimately. But in First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 39, Paul says, all flesh is not the same flesh. For there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. So here we find Paul speaking about different kinds or types of flesh. So we'll ask the question now, what is flesh? Now here's a quotation from Brother Thomas, written, um, well it was found in, a, in, a, in his writings after he had uh, fallen asleep and actually um, it, it, this this, um, this uh, piece was um, reproduced in the Christopher magazine um, part of it not this particular quote was also quoted in Brother Roberts's book uh, ways of providence a very important document um, the formative power of the universe makes some very concise and uh, powerful points but let's just see what brother thomas says here about flesh man and animals generally are all electrical bodies differing among themselves only in form and organization hence it is written they have all one spirit ruach so that man hath no preeminence of a beast for all his vanity hence flesh is defined to be spirit ruach that's hebrew word for spirit that passeth away and cometh not um, again now the key thing to note here is that um, Brother Thomas is saying that flesh was originally uh, created by the Spirit of um, God. Let's go on now to a further quotation um, or from Brother Thomas, this time from an article, What is Flesh? The Spirit in David testifies um, in the Psalms that flesh is spirit that passeth away and cometh not again. The common version says flesh is a wind, but in the Hebrew, the word is ruach, which in Genesis 1 verse 2 is translated spirit, as also in a multitude of other places. Flesh then is spirit if we are to believe the word. If the creative power, which is spirit, organized the dust of the ground into different kinds of living machines or organisms, these are spirit forms which become capable of giving expression to an almost infinite variety of operations. So um, this uh, gives us a, um, a, a, sort of a good definition of what flesh is, namely, uh, at least in terms of its origin, and that is that um, both men and animals are flesh, um, but nevertheless, and they've been created by through the Spirit of God originally, but there is, um, although they're both flesh, there are differences between um, animals and man. Um, so um, now uh, let's um, look at um, a further quote here. These spirit forms are styled by Moses, the spirit of all flesh, to which Adam gave appropriate names when the creating power in whom they lived and moved and had their being caused them to pass in, in review before him. One of these spirits was a lion, 
another an elephant, a third a horse, and so forth. The human organ organism is the most perfect of all animal machines, hence its mental or spiritual manifestations are of a higher and more perfect order than all the rest. So we see these, again, the difference here or uh, between animals and man, although they are both fundamentally made of flesh. Well, now let's uh, consider further Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, verse 39. As, as, can be, and as can be seen, within each, each flesh type which he speaks about, we can um, uh, add to that the, the uh, kinds as shown as we read of um, in Genesis chapter 1. So we've got a model here which we've made basically of looking at the different types of flesh as spoken uh, by Paul and then into that we put the different kinds um, which we read of um, in Genesis chapter 1. So the question is then, um, can we... Uh, can one kind of uh, um, uh, animal or creature develop or evolve into another kind? Um, and the answer to that is no. We know that can't happen because Scripture says it can't happen. They reproduce after their kind. So um, when an elephant gives birth, uh, you don't expect it to give birth to a completely different creature. Um, it gives it reproduces after um, its kind. Um, but even more so, you, you wouldn't expect, based on what Paul has written here, or concerning the flesh, you wouldn't expect a, one kind then to evolve into another kind, which is not only a different kind, but is also of a different type of flesh as well. That's also not going to happen so for example you're not going to get a beast a living creature that is a, a beast as defined by paul um evolving um into uh, a bird because not only is that a different kind but it's also a different type of flesh as well so you would for that to happen you'd have two violations for a beast to evolve into a bird first we had to go from one kind to another and also from one flesh to another but um, as uh, I'm sure we're all aware it's um, generally accepted today uh, as illustrated by the Snapchat History Museum website that birds evolved from dinosaurs specifically it's thought from a subgroup of theropod uh, dinosaurs now it's true there are similarities um, between dinosaurs and birds, for example, with regard to air sacs, as shown here in this uh, illustration. But for a um, dinosaur evolving into a bird, this would involve the double violation of the principles we have identified, uh, where a kind becomes another kind and has different flesh from its ancestor. But this is not um, allowed as we've seen from scripture so we can use uh, scripture both uh, the writings of paul and the writings from genesis combine them to uh, show from a scriptural perspective how that for example a living creature such as a dinosaur uh, could not evolve um, into a bird 
Now let's move on to think about um, the undoubted genetic similarities there are between, um, for example, men and certain beasts. Um, let's consider, for example, the following comments on the website of the um, Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History uh, in a section speaking about what it means to be human. So in this quote on this website, it says, uh, geneticists have come up with a variety of ways of calculating the percentages which give different impressions about how similar chimpanzees and humans are. The 1.2% chimp-human distinction, for example, involves a measurement of only substitutions in the base building blocks of the, those genes that chimpanzees and humans share. A comparison of the entire genome, however, indicates that segments of DNA have also been deleted, duplicated over and over, or inserted from one part of the genome into another. When these differences are counted, there is an additional 4 to 5% distinction between the human and uh, chimpanzee uh, genomes. Now, uh, before we look at this, let's just look at a further quotation uh, from this website. Um, no matter how the calculation is done, the big point still holds. Humans, chimpanzees, bonobos are more closely related to one another than either is to gorillas or any other primate. From the perspective of this powerful test of biological kinship, humans are not only related to the great apes, we are one. The DNA evidence leaves us with one of the greatest surprises in biology. The wall between human on the one hand and ape or animal on the other has been breached. The human evolutionary tree is embedded uh, within the great apes. So there are a couple of key points to note from this quotation. First, human and apes are said to be one. Secondly, the barrier between human and animal has been broken. So let's look first at this uh, latter point. Is it true that the wall between man and animal has been breached? If so, this runs against what Paul wrote for uh, when he said all flesh is not the same flesh but there is one kind of flesh of men another flesh of beasts for whatever the similarities between humans and apes they are of a different what Paul calls flesh so it is not true that the wall between man and animal has been breached now let's look at that statement humans are not only related to the great apes we are one well, we can turn to Genesis 3 and verses 4 and 5 here to help us uh, analyze uh, the reasoning um, which uh, is being used to make that statement about how humans and apes are one. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4, we read, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, we can see uh, the serpent reasoning here. He says, you will be, basically he's saying, you will be the same as angels with respect to knowing good and evil, which of course is true. But angels do not die. 
Therefore, as you will be the same as angels, you will not die as well. And we can see that the, the, uh, the false reasoning there of the serpent he, he's basically he's identified a similarity. They were both no good and evil. Um, he's then, though, uh, uh, falsely then reasoned that um, they would be uh, equal with regard to um, identical with regard to other criteria as well. This is just a basic fallacious piece of reasoning. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. That says, and, and that you put a difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. Now, um, when, uh, when we're doing Bible study, we, we, as Christophians, we train ourselves to compare Scripture with Scripture to look for similarities between one passage and another. It's also, of course, very important to be able to identify differences between things as well, as brought out here in Leviticus chapter 10. And let's look at another example here, Genesis 27, where we read, And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy, as his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. So he identifies the similarity here. Um, the hands were similar to those of Esau, but he ignored the differences. And he just assumed identity and assumed that Jacob actually was um, Esau. It's a serpent-like reasoning. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, we read, Every beast that parteth the hoof and cleareth the cleft into two claws and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that ye shall eat. Nevertheless, these ye shall not eat of them that chew the cud or of them that divide the cloven hoof. As the camel and the hare and the coney, for they chew the cud, but divide not the hoof. Therefore, they are unclean unto you. Now, a serpent-like reason would be, well, the animal chews the cud, divides the cloven foot. Therefore, it is clean. But that ignores um, the difference uh, which um, uh, between the two. So let's go back then to that quotation on that website where we read of the 1.2% chimp-human distinction and then the additional 4 to 5% distinction between the human and chimpanzee, chimpanzee genomes. So, yes, there are, sim there are um, uh, similarities, many similarities apparently, um, genetically between the chimpanzee and uh, humans. But what's also important to note are the distinctions, uh, the differences between them. And just to um, uh, decide that uh, we are one with chimpanzees, just because we have got a large uh, apparent similarity between genetic, genetically between the two, is just the is just a reason like the serpent. So they say, or the, that website said, humans are not only related to the great apes, we are one. And the serpent-like reasoning is, well, humans are as chimpanzees with respect to showing many genomic similarities. Humans are as chimpanzees, so they are one. But even when there's a large proportion of similarities, it is vital to put a difference between things uh, when they do not share certain criteria of identi identity. Incidentally, serpent reasoning is also used to support the Trinitarian doctrine. There are many similarities, it is true, between God and Christ. For example, God is Saviour, Christ is Saviour, 
Um, but then to move from that, identifying those sim similarities, because there are many similarities you could, identi could identify, to move from that to say, oh, therefore, Christ is God, um, that's just false reasoning. So when considering um, similarities uh, between different kinds with regard to um, uh, genetics, we also have to uh, remember to uh, the differences as well and not to falsely then just to move from identifying a large um, range of similarities and then say, oh, that, they are both one. That is a, um, a false piece of reasoning. So then, in conclusion, we can, we've, in this talk, we have identified um, or made the following points. First of all, life is given by God. Secondly, it's impossible for life to arise naturally from non-living things. Living things can make, but they cannot create. The teaching of the Lord Jesus concerning fruit and the identity of trees is helpful for exposing the error of evolutionary theory. And finally, the serpent fallacy underlies false reasoning concerning genetic similarities. So I uh, hope you found that talk useful and uh, maybe God willing, we can produce, have a look at some other topics uh, under the, the theme of uh, creation, um, particularly with regard to creation uh, for the, considering it for the, um, in the Christophian comment.